This is Religion and Theology, a podcast from the Center for Theology and Religious Studies. This is the second episode on Heidegger and theology, in which George Pattinson, professor of divinity, University of Glasgow, will give a talk on why Heidegger didn't like Catholic theology. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to look up the anthology Heidegger and Theology after the Black Notebooks, which was edited by Martin Björk and the main organizer, Jane Svenningson, and was a result of the symposium with the same name hosted by CTR back in December of 2015. In this episode, Professor Patterson will investigate the particular hostility towards Catholic theology at the time of the writing of the Black Notebooks in Martin Heidegger's thought. Thank you. I should make clear at the start, just to preempt misunderstanding, that I am neither a member of the Roman Catholic Church, nor do I regard myself as a Catholic, even not even an Anglo-Catholic uh, theologian, uh, sort of post-quasi-ecclesial, post-Protestant, um, or something like that. Um, and my full title, that's the title that appears on your sheets, Why Heidegger Didn't Like Catholic Theology, The Case of Romano Gardini. So this is really a kind of expansion, really, of what is a very tiny uh, little mention of Gardini in the Black Books. But So it takes my starting point from the Black Books uh, and explores part of the context of Heidegger's remark about Gardini there. So in describing the Black Books, we might be tempted to borrow from our Hebrew Bible scholar colleagues who have identified a genre in the Hebrew Bible called the Psalms of Complaint. Certainly in the early parts of the Black Book, Heidegger finds a lot to complain about. There are a number of recurrent targets for these complaints. People who misunderstand the whole thrust of his philosophy, especially those who say he got all his ideas from Kierkegaard and or Nietzsche. Indeed, people who don't understand philosophy at all, seeing it solely in terms of Weltanschauung, worldview. People who don't understand the true meaning of national socialism, including those who confuse the idea of folk with biological kinship, and not least, Roman Catholicism. Also important is the danger posed by the present phase of planetary technology. Naturally, those who interpret Heidegger in an exclusively biographical perspective will be likely to take the remarks about Roman Catholicism as a case of the excessive zeal of an unconvert. That is to say that it reflects his own sometime frustrated, or at least abandoned, ambitions to become a Catholic philosopher. The thrust of this paper, by way of contrast, is to indicate why Roman Catholicism did constitute a particular challenge to Heidegger's intellectual political thinking in these years, and therefore why it made good philosophical sense for him critically to reflect on it. However, my argument is also that it's not Roman Catholicism in general that's the challenge, but a more particular current of German Catholic thinking, of which one of the leading representatives at the time was Romano Gardini. When I first started reading the black books, and I have to say I haven't read every page of the ones published so far, but I was struck by passages such as 3184, where Heidegger comments on the danger Catholicism poses to national socialism. 
German Catholicism is now beginning, he writes, to take over the intellectual Geistigen world of German idealism, of Kierkegaard and Nietzsche, and to let itself be transformed in its distinctive way and with the clear and assured means of its own tradition. In its own way, it takes over an essential and powerful tradition and uses it to prepare a new intellectual position for itself, whilst National Socialism runs the risk of emphasising its otherness and novelty so loudly that it cuts itself off from the great tradition and runs into helplessness and half-heartedness. Fighting the church is pointless, but to fight against Catholicism when it transforms itself into the intellectual political centre and does so with all the assured inner structure of its powerful ecclesiastical organisation is a fundamental challenge. But before this challenge can be met, it's necessary to have an appropriate point of departure and a clear knowledge of the situation. Reading such passages, and there are quite a few of them, it gradually became clear that Heidegger had some very specific currents of Catholic thought in mind, maybe even some individual Catholic theologians, but who? Though then knowing Gardini's work only from the letters from Lake Como and his essay on Kierkegaard, it struck me that he might well be the kind of Catholic theologian Heidegger had in mind. I was therefore highly gratified when I arrived at 5.58 to read, We lack all great intellectual seducers, but the mediocre ones are thereby all the more numerous. The most serious and above all the sharpest, Geschichtester, is, e.g., the theologian Gardini. He runs through all the intellectual possibilities of the great figures from amongst the poets and thinkers, never dully, never crudely Catholic, always with the appearance of a modern struggle for truth, struggle in inverted quotation marks, with all the means of contemporary thinking and speaking. But an essential question is never ventured, and he never even struggles with anything except questions that have not been posed now for a long while. It's always a matter of being in the secure and newly assured possession of answers for those eager to flee all questions. For the average sort of people who are too lazy or too tired to think, this indeed gives the appearance of being creative, creative, but it's all just a matter of a very sharp reproduction of what the church fathers and apologists of the first Christian centuries already practiced in their own way. Today's intellectual life, however, is so directionless and so lacking in any criteria that it's not merely satisfied with such an authorship, but even regards it as superior to what went before. But who was Gardini, and why should Heidegger single him out for particular concern? Born in 1885 in Italy, Gardini was brought up in Germany from the age of one. As you'll see, he was almost the same age as Heidegger, like Heidegger, he attended Freiburg University, where he gained his doctorate in 1915 with a thesis on Bonaventure under the supervision of Engelbert Krebs. Again, like Heidegger, some of his earliest publications have been in the Catholic journal Der Akademiker. It's unclear to me what level of personal contact they may have had in this period, although their paths were to cross again significantly in 1945-6. In the meantime, in 1923, Gardini was appointed to a chair of the University of Berlin dedicated to the philosophy of religion and the Catholic worldview, Weltanschauung. The title of this post, we may say, 
is ominous with regard to how Heidegger might judge it, given his contempt for the identification of philosophy with worldviews, expressed not only in the black books, but from at least 1919 onwards, point to which I'll return. In Berlin, Gardini soon became an important focus of Catholic intellectual life. Amongst the distinctive features of his thought was an emphasis on liturgy, and he became an influential figure in the then-developing liturgical movement, and an engagement with literature and culture as foci for Catholic apologetics. Amongst those attracted to Berlin uh, by his work were Hans Urs von Balthasar. It's not hard to see why. In 1971, in fact, Balthazar would be the second winner of the Romano-Gardini Prize, following on from Karl Rahner, this being awarded, quote, for the interpretation of life and world in the domain of culture in the broad sense associated with Romano-Gardini. As Paul Silas Peterson notes in a recent study of von Balthasar's early thought, whilst Gardini was by no means the only Catholic theologian engaging with literature at the time, aspects of his thought would be especially appealing to the young Swiss theologian, including an emphasis on Kierkegaard and Goethe, coupled with a critical view of contemporary society, especially in its technological aspect, and the promotion of a dynamic and organic view of freedom. Like many in the 1920s in art and politics, on left and right, Gardini also spoke of the stirring of, quote, a new freedom that would address and resolve the current crisis of the West. Indeed, if we look at the range of Gardini's major publications in the interwar period, they not only anticipate von Balthasar's future agenda, they also parallel many of Heidegger's interests in this period. Kierkegaard, Rilke, Technology... Pascal, Dostoevsky, Dante, Augustine, and, above all, Hölderlin, to whom he devoted a nearly 600-page study published in 1939. In the context of the Third Reich, a chair in Catholic worldview was no longer welcome, and the post was suppressed in 1939. Gardini's position was aggravated by an essay on Der Heiland that directly contradicted the anti-Semitic view of Jesus as instantiating an Aryan saviour myth parallel to Dionysus or Baldor. He lived in semi-seclusion from 1939 to 45, when liberation brought an interesting rash of job opportunities. Amongst these was a chair held until his death in 1941 by Martin Honecker, perhaps chiefly now known for failing his student Karl Rahner's doctoral dissertation. Going back to what Judith said in the last lecture, this was the Concordat chair which she spoke about, namely a, a chair in a public university that did not have a faculty of theology, but to which the Catholic Church had the right of appointment. On Honecker's death, again, as Judith said, Heidegger seems to have been amongst those who were instrumental in deconfessionalizing the post and make it a purely, making it a purely secular post in the psychology of religion, to which one Robert Heiss, who had become dean of the philosophy faculty in 1946, was appointed, having been declared politically clean, though unsurprisingly subsequent rumours of Nazi party membership have emerged. So in 1945, this chair was redesignated as a chair in Christian philosophy, and the university encouraged Gardini to accept it. In August 1945, Heidegger himself, despite the unpublished remarks in the Black Books, wrote to Gardini in amicable terms, pressing him to take up the offer. 
However, Gardini had already accepted a post at Tübingen, where he began lecturing in the winter semester of 1945-6, but this is not the whole story. In summer 1945, the university had still hoped that Heidegger would be reinstated. The idea was a dream ticket, which would mean Gardini in the restored Concordat chair and Heidegger in the philosophy chair. But even before the issue of Heidegger was unresolved, uh, was resolved, it had become clear that this wasn't going to happen, and the pro-rector Franz Buchner had begun writing to Gardini already in August, uh, encouraging him to take over Heidegger's chair. However, perhaps in his own way, echoing the comments we've heard from Heidegger, the Catholic philosopher insisted that, quote, I'm not a specialist in any one area, but simply someone who looks at things and historical events and reflects on what he sees, a critic and interpreter, if you like. I think that's a wonderful definition of what an academic should be, actually, and in this era of research where we're all meant to be scientific researchers, I think we could do with going back to just being people who look at things and events and reflect on what we've read a bit, a critic and interpreter, if you like. Buchner wrote back, Nevertheless, quote, for you of all people to take over Heidegger's chair would be a symbolic act of extraordinary power because it would signal unmistakably that Germany's universities, having gone through the misery of existential philosophy, are now awaiting the liberating word from a man who has repeatedly transcended the intellectual realm to enter the spiritual and for whom philosophy and theology ultimately form a single whole. As for Gardini's comment that he was only a critic and interpreter, Buchner suggested that Heidegger's own best work was precisely as a critic and interpreter of Plato and Hölderlin. In the light of what we've heard from the black books, we can only imagine Heidegger's mortification had Gardini accepted, but he didn't, preferring to use his energies to getting his post at Tübingen fully secured and having it retitled The Philosophy of Religion and the Christian Worldview. Illustrating the worldview, he didn't, wasn't just keen on worldview because he was appointed in 23 to an existing chair in Catholic worldview, but the worldview was actually an important uh, concept in his thought. Later, he would move to a chair in Munich. In 1949, he would be amongst those writing in support of Heidegger's reinstatement, calling him the most potent force in German philosophy today. Having turned down a cardinal's hat, Gardini died in 1969. Amongst those acknowledging his influence have been both Joseph Ratzinger and Jorge Mario Bergoglio, better known today as Pope Francis. All of this may seem a distraction from the philosophical tasks of our symposium, but this biographical sketch indicates, I think, why Heidegger might have singled Gardini out for particular comment. On the one hand, it's clear that there was considerable overlap in their intellectual milieu and interests, and indeed over a 30-year period. On the other hand, it's precisely this proximity that throws their differences into sharper relief. And as we shall see, these differences are not reducible to Heidegger having been amongst the great thinkers of the Western tradition and Gardini having been but a critic and interpreter. So as such, Gardini becomes well-suited to helping identify just what it was Heidegger most disliked about Catholic philosophy and why, in a way that, for example, a contemporary Catholic theologian who continued down the path of neo-scholasticism could not do. And I think there's an interesting shift here. If 
in being and time. It's the hardened tradition of scholasticism that Heidegger uh, is most uh, negative about. By the 1930s, it's no longer scholastic philosophy that's, that's the issue, but precisely Gardini's novel, non-scholastic, dynamic life philosophy of life, theology of life, that Heidegger was seeing as more threatening. See more clearly why exactly uh, this threat um, mattered, I shall focus the paper on a small selection of Gardini's publications from the relevant period, making Heideggerian connections as I go along. I shall start by sketching some of the main ideas of his early systematic work, though it's not very systematic, Der Gegensatz, Versuche zu einer Philosophie des lebendig Konkreter, 1925, which, as he states in the introduction, reflects his teaching at Berlin, 1923-4. This brings us to the idea of a worldview, which I shall develop by reference to his inaugural lecture in Berlin on the essence of a Catholic worldview, before commenting briefly on his letters from Lake Como, published serially between 1923 and 25 before turning finally to his 1939 Hölderlin book. In each case, we find a pattern of proximity and distance to Heidegger's thought, with the relevant tension reaching perhaps its highest degree in the case of their respective interpretations of Hölderlin, which will bring us back to some of the points we were discussing uh, in, in the last lecture and to some extent maybe yesterday evening. As we've heard, Gardini did not regard himself as a systematic thinker. He wasn't. And in the preface to a 1955 re-edition of Der Gegensatz, he referred to it as basically just the sketch of an idea. Nevertheless, it does introduce us to some of his most characteristic ideas, his way of thinking, if you like. As the title suggests, it's an attempt to focus philosophy more closely on the concreteness of life. Like Heidegger's early work, this reflects the context of early 20th century Lebensphilosophy, although Gardini remained closer to this theme of life than did Heidegger. His philosophy is a philosophy of life that, as such, seeks to reflect the dynamism, openness, and concrete fullness of life as it is lived. Precisely for this reason, Gardini acknowledges from the outset that there are limits to any kind of systematization. Nonetheless, what he offers in this sketch is a way of organising our experience of life by reference to a sequence of interrelated polarities, not entirely unlike what Anglophone readers may be familiar with through Paul Tillich's systematic theology, although Tillich systematises much more than Gardini does. Gardini organises these polarities in three sequences that he calls intra-empirical, trans-empirical and transcendental. Um, well, you did, won't have to remember all this, but I'll, I'll run through it for the sake of completeness. The polarities here are in the intra-empirical, the dynamic and the static, form, and something for which Gardini admits having difficulty finding the right word since its primary characteristic is simply the negation of form, maybe the chaotic. Thirdly, the whole and the particular or individual. Yet these are not sufficient to account for what we experience as a dimension of inwardness in life, that in relation to the empirical world, sense experience, has the character of a jenseits, a beyond, that as such has ultimate validity for all that we do in fact experience. This inner realm is what he calls the trans-empirical, and this in turn is explicable in terms of three key polarities, creativity versus givenness, 
regularity versus originality, and inwardness versus what Gardini calls außersichstehen, standing outside ourselves, perhaps what Tillich called the ecstatic quality of existence. Finally, there are the transcendental polarities of relatedness and separation and unity and multiplicity. So you don't need to remember all these, but you get the impression. Collectively, all the polarities can be grouped then into two sets, that one side of which emphasizes order, form, wholeness, regularity, and the other engages the dynamic, originary, productive fullness of inner-worldly life. Importantly, these are all effective both at the level of individual life, at the various forms of social life, family, culture and state, as well as in what is more specifically personal and religious. And for Gardini, within his Catholic perspective, he can't see social life as disconnected from the realm of religious values and religious leadership. Again, a point to which we'll return. Taken together, then, the polarities simply reveal, quote, the way in which life is living. It's crucial for Gardini that none of the polarities singly or in any combination can stand alone. In life, life as it is lived and is living within us and without us occurs as involving always some combination of polarities. One person is more dynamic and active, another more stable and settled, but no one is completely one or the other. Life is both formed and ever-changing. Therefore, we shouldn't seek to reduce it to one or other pole, such as, on the one hand, philosophies of vitalism, or on the other, formalism might seem to do. What we should be doing is to discern the rhythm in which the particular and concrete relationship between the polarities moves forward in time, and rhythm is a key technical term for Gardini. Yet for there to be a rhythm in the concrete living entity, the concrete living entity must have both a middle or centre and a measure. Its middle being a distinctive sense of inwardness. That is what gives it just this particular ultimate character that it has. This isn't an essence or a what, but it's what holds the whole pattern of movement and relationships in which it is what and as it is together. To find this middle is to find the ultimate origin that is, quote, source, and at the same time, the point from which we may exercise mastery over our lives. But the measure that, as it were, regulates what comes forth from this source isn't an external constraint, but what enables us to identify it as a distinctive element within a process of flux and endless transformation. So I suppose the, the, the middle is what makes me precisely me, and the measure is what makes me me and not you or somebody else. But that's not a constraint because I couldn't be me unless there were other people who were different. Clearly these cannot be knowable through conventional philosophical concepts, and indeed much of what Gardini says, though he doesn't say it very loudly, of course, is implicitly critical of then-current paradigms of Thomist teaching. Not even intuitions. It can only be known in a kind of vision, Anschauung, and he distinguishes between the Latin intuition and the German Anschauung, and, and it's, uh, he rejects the former in favour of Anschauung that is active, symbolic, and grounded in our own being. 
But then he asks whether such a concrete vision of life seen in the moment of being lived means, in the end, focusing on the particular at the expense of the whole. The question is complicated by the fact that for Gardini, the very openness of life, therefore of any presumed knowledge of life, means that the whole could really only be known by a position from outside the world, <coughs> i.e. by God. Human beings, however, can at least approximate to such an, as it were, retrospective view from beyond, and they do so precisely by means of and in faith. It's therefore faith that makes it possible for us to see the whole, to have a world view, that is, a view of the world in its wholeness, that is cognizant of the middle and measure that makes the world meaningful, whilst preserving the real openness of concrete actual life. Faith gives us a distance, abstand, from the world, and does so on the basis of revelation, in which, quote, the supra-worldly God enters into the world. And another quote, a world view is ultimately God's view, blick, on the world, Christ's view. In the light of these comments, we can see that the inaugural lecture on the essence of a Catholic worldview was not only a polite response to the title of Gardini's chair, um, but indicates a central characteristic of his thought. From what is said in Der Gegensatz, we might even say that Christian thinking in its fullness, according to Gardini, will have to take the view, the form of a worldview. Whilst conversely, the only truly adequate worldview, and of course this is a time in which people are talking about the scientific worldview, the secular worldview, the artistic worldview and so on, is in fact the Christian and specifically the Catholic worldview. Indeed, Gardini's lecture reinforces the reasons for thinking that Catholicism might have a natural affinity with the idea of a worldview in a way that Protestantism does not, especially when it's a matter of the kind of Protestantism associated with the theology of crisis or the existential theology of Bultmann. For Protestantism, at least in the forms best known to Heidegger and, and Gardini in this period, had effectively separated the life of faith from the task of constructing a holistic interpretation of life and the world. Spurred on by Kierkegaard, or I should say a particular way of reading Kierkegaard, it had focused the whole issue on the religious struggle of the individual. But as Gardini would argue in his own essay on Kierkegaard, for all the truth and passion that such a position can involve, and he doesn't deny the truth of Kierkegaard, it can only ever be a one-sided moment in the dynamically polar movement of life. So Kierkegaard emphasises the individual, and that's legitimate as part of the movement of life as a whole, but it isn't the whole. Only Catholicism is in a position to take that step back from the world and in faith to see that world as a whole in a distinctive worldview. So by implication, you know, only Catholicism, in a sense, can really understand Kierkegaard because it can see how this kind of exaggerated individualism is true within the greater movement. Worldview is, of course, a concept that Heidegger regarded with distrust and even contempt. Already in the conclusion to the published version of his thesis on Duns Scotus' doctrine of categories, he'd criticised understanding philosophy in terms of worldview. In Heidegger's words, such worldviews are never more than an ever-provisional summary of what is knowable, whereas what is needed is a breakthrough to true actuality and actual truth. 
A similar reserve runs through the 1919-21 review of Jasper's Psychology of Worldviews, whilst the black books themselves strike a strongly polemical tone, as in 4.29. Worldviews fall outside the circle of creative thinking, philosophy, and likewise of great art. They are, however, this is continuing Heidegger, they are, however, the ways by which philosophy and art are made immediate, i.e., organised so as to be useful and thus misusable by all and sundry. Philosophy, therefore, can never be a worldview and shouldn't even think about taking over its place. Indeed, philosophy can't even set out to determine any one worldview, but just has to put up with it, or with being used by it, or just move on by. The so-called theoretical theoretical foundations sought for worldviews are thus a peculiar mixture of half-philosophy and half-science, lacking the rigour of thinking, just as they lack the rigour of research. Gardini, for his part, takes the opposite view. Acknowledging the difficulty of defining what a worldview, and one wonders kind of whether, you know, sometime in 1913 they sat there in a student room with their pipes and beer debating uh, whether philosophy had to be worldview or not, but I had no knowledge of that. Gardini takes the opposite view. Acknowledging the difficulty of defining what a worldview actually is, he opens his lecture by affirming that the development of a worldview is a genuine scientific task, quote, and not just an overall summary of a cultural or apologetic nature. Indeed, it is a distinctive science, not a mixture of philosophy and theology. However, as he immediately adds, he's not there to talk about worldviews in general, but to set out what is involved in a Catholic worldview. Versus the individual positive sciences, a worldview takes a holistic view of the world. Yet even though it may also include non-theoretical elements, its aim is to affirm the truth of what it proposes. It makes truth claims. The aspiration towards wholeness might seem to parallel a similar aspiration in being and time. As Gardini notes, metaphysics too seeks the whole. However, whereas metaphysics is oriented towards what is essential and universal... A worldview seeks the truth of what is essential as it shows itself in concrete actuality. So metaphysics abstracts from concrete and looks to universally valid cat- categories such as being and essence and so on, whereas worldview looks to see the whole as it appears in life. Another competitor that he acknowledges is history. But this, too, can, in fact, be uh, approached in terms of the search for universal laws, although he acknowledges that when history focuses on the concrete in particular, it comes into a certain proximity to worldviews. But by way of contrast with history, a worldview isn't just about discerning what is the case, inclusive of values and duties, but also seeks to interpret the demand that the world thus represented places upon human beings. Naturally, a worldview is not itself life, since it is about anschauung, contemplation, not doing or acting. But by clarifying the demands that the world in its concrete fullness is making upon us, it, as it were, sets the stage for action. It provides a basis for action. Quote, worldview is the encounter of man and world, standing over against one another, eyeball to eyeball. It is a seeing and a knowing. Even if its knowing is saturated with a very different degree of content, heavy and near to life, than is the case with science or philosophy. 
But what is this world, view, this world that is thus viewed in a world view? It has, Gardini tells his auditors, three elements. Firstly, it is the totality of all external things and occurrences, inclusive of human beings insofar as we belong to the physical world and could be objects of physics or biology or other physical sciences. Next, it is the world of the human, properly speaking. Finally, quote, it is the absolute ground and origin of world and of humanity, God. As we've already heard in Der Gegensatz, it is divine revelation that makes possible the distance from the world that enables us in turn to see world as world. As Gardini now puts it, it provides a standpoint, standpoint quote, that frees those who stand upon it for a real encounter with the world, a true thou saying, and free for a clear encompassing and overview for uncorrupted evaluation. This is the viewpoint from which we see the world as Christ sees it. However, as Gardini is quick to point out, this doesn't mean that the individual human being is assumed to be capable of a perfected vision. Faith takes variable individual forms, and each will be acutely aware of their own shortcomings. All of this, however, isn't merely theoretical. Again, it's a question of being faced with a challenge and a demand. Quote, do we have such a faith? Are we serious about it? With its certainty woven through with questions, its optimism ever tempted, its criteria so seemingly alien to the world, are we ready to risk asserting the reality and validity of such a faith, indeed its absolute reality, its definitive validity, over against the sure-footed certainty of life, of science and of philosophy? Yet if this seems to make a very particular kind of faith definitive of the Catholic worldview, Gardini insists that the Catholic worldview is not one worldview alongside others. It's not a type. He explains this in the following way. Each of, say, Augustine, Thomas and Loyola may represent a particular type of faith. They're all very different spiritual and intellectual personalities. But what's characteristic of the Catholic worldview is precisely that it embraces all of them and has room for Augustine, Thomas and Loyola and, of course, many, many others. As he'll say in De Gegensatz, the unity of life is a unity of paradoxical and polarised elements. In Catholicism, this unity exists precisely in and by virtue of the concreteness of the ecclesiastical community. The wholeness of the Catholic worldview is thus not the whole of any one individual's vision, but the dynamic and developing life of the church. Quote, she is the historical bearer of the complete vision, blick, with which Christ sees the world. And the teaching of the Catholic worldview is simply the scientific apprehension of this vision and of what it sees. Having heard Heidegger's comments on the nature of worldviews and of philosophical claims on their behalf, it's not hard to see the gulf that must exist between their two fundamental approaches to the intellectual challenge of the contemporary situation, noting that situation is also another object of Heidegger's complaints in the black books. Yet in Gardini's comments about the church, and this again uh, refers back to several themes that have been around in previous papers, in his comments about the church we also see the shadow of what will be a theme in Heidegger's political thought, namely that the task of thinking is ultimately not just a task for the individual, 
but for a community. In Heideggerian terms, what's important, at least in the early 1930s, is not just a matter of, say, Heidegger reading Heraclitus, but of Germany encountering Greece anew. As Peterson has noted in his study of von Balthasar, it's just this kind of emphasis that brought some Catholic thinkers, he thinks von Balthasar was one of them, and Gardini had a tendency in that direction, whose chief complaint against Nazism was not that it was Nazism, but that it sought its religious foundations in neo-paganism, whereas they claimed Catholicism could and should have provided a better and more adequate grounding for the new Germany that Nazism sought to build in terms of Peter's lecture last night, that Catholicism should have been allowed to provide the mythology, as it were, for this new leap forward. Um, von Balthasar kind of puts it interestingly in a sort of sketch of the history of ideas. He says, you know, in the decade leading up to World War I, we were all thinking about Nietzsche, you know, the new humanity asserting itself in the crisis at the end of World War I. The 1920s was the decade of Kierkegaard when we realised we couldn't do it on our own without God and we are shattered individuals who needed God. The 1930s, we turned to Dostoevsky. Um, and a kind of reading of Dostoevsky, I think, very different from ours, that precisely what mattered was this celebration in Dostoevsky of the collective life of Russia and Russianness, this sort of peasant nationalism, which thinkers like... Um, from Balthazar and others who read him in a kind of right-wing perspective seem to unproblematically transfer over to Germany and describe everything that Dostoevsky saw in the kind of soul of the Russian peasant to the, the, the new Germany. And again, interesting theme that emerges in, in the black books about uh, Heidegger's meditations on Russia and how Russia maybe has some depth that will enable it to resist the technologization and modernization of Bolshevism. There are many tangled and vexed and interesting issues here that we can't really explore further now, other than to note how the way in which Gardini relates the question of worldview to the question of community further underlines why Heidegger might have found just this kind of Catholicism not just obnoxious, but challenging to the political philosophical vision he's seeking in the black books. Moreover, their analyses of what is wrong with the modern world, why that world needs to find a new grounding through the risk-filled ventures of, respectively, believers and thinkers, show significant affinities. These come to vivid appearance in Gardini's letters from Lake Como, Explorations in Technology and the Human Race. As these letters show, Gardini had already in the early 1920s defined the core challenge facing the modern world as being precisely the question concerning technology on which Heidegger would increasingly focus his attention from the mid-1930s onwards. The letters, which are beautifully written, offer reflections on a journey Gardini took to his native Italy, contrasting the way of life he encountered there with the industrial world of contemporary Germany. He compares architecture, social mores, and as here, two fundamentally different conceptions of boat building and boat use. Take a vessel sailing on Lake Como. Though it is of considerable weight, the masses of wood and linen, along with the force of the wind, combine so perfectly that it has become light. We have here an ancient legacy of form, 
Do you not see what a remarkable fact of culture is present when human beings become masters of wind and wave by fashioning wood and fitting it together and spanning linen sails? Certainly we pay for it already with a certain remoteness. We're no longer plunged into the sphere of wind and water as birds and fishes are. The Dionysiac surrender has been reshaped. Yet the lines and proportions of the ship are still in profound harmony with the pressure of, of the wind and waves and the vital human measure. Again, that term measure. Those who control this ship are still very closely related to the wind and waves. They are breast to breast with their force. Eye and hand and whole body brace against them. We have here real culture, elevation above nature, yet decisive nearness to it. However, this is already lost in some degree when the modern engine-driven boat is substituted for sail. It's completely lost when we consider a modern ocean liner. A colossus of this type presses on through the sea regardless of wind and waves. It's so large that nature no longer has power over it. We can no longer see nature on it. People on board eat and drink and sleep and dance. They live as if in houses and on city streets. And he adds, this is no longer a matter of simple progress along a given scale, no, matter, no longer a matter of incremental change, but, quote, a fluid line has been crossed that we cannot fix precisely but can only detect when we've long since passed over it. Something decisive has been lost. Now, perhaps in comparison with Heidegger, there's a certain uncritical use of the term nature here. Yet to put it in Heidegger's terms, the basic distinction between the kind of techne that remains informed by fusis and the kind of techne that's imposed on the world of, in the manner of what Heidegger will call the modern gestell, not exactly but well translated by the English enframing, is very much in line with a fundamental element of Heidegger's own critique of technology. It is in this vein, for example, that Heidegger speaks of how a, tradition wind, a traditional windmill, quote, does not unlock energy from the air currents in order to store it. Traditional farming does not challenge the soil of the field. In the sowing of the grain, it places the seed in the keeping of the forces of growth and watches over its increase. However, modern agriculture does challenge the soil as it's transformed into the mechanised food industry. Quote, air is now set upon to yield nitrogen, the earth to yield ore, or to yield uranium. Uranium is set upon to yield atomic energy, which can be released either for destruction or peaceful use. When a hydroelectric plant is constructed on the Rhine, this is not technology in the same sense as the ancient wooden bridge that once spanned the river. The river itself has been changed and has become simply a source of power that can be stored, and that is in itself indifferent vis-à-vis -vis its use, whether the power has been generated by water, wind, sun, coal, or nuclear energy. The river has become simply bestand, a reserve or resource to be managed in accordance with human demands that are only tangentially respectful of and responsive to its distinctive character. Quote, but it will be replied, the Rhine is still a river in the landscape, is it not? Perhaps, but how? In no other way than as an object on call for inspection by a tour group ordered there by the vacation industry. This is kind of post-war, so almost certainly the tour group are Americans. 
Two ways of relating human craft and its environment then. And at this point, Heidegger and Gardini seem united in their analysis of what both see as perhaps the determining character of the modern world. And whilst both may be tempted, as many in the 19th and 20th centuries have been, simply to reject the modern development, both understand that that's not possible. Thus, Gardini, quote, we must transform what is coming to be, but we can only do this if we honestly say yes to it, and yet with incorruptible hearts remain aware of all that is destructive and non-human in it. Our age has been given to us as the soil on which to stand and the task to master. At bottom, we would not wish it otherwise. Our age is not just an external path that we tread, it is ourselves. The decision concerning technology, then, is one in which the essence of being human is itself at issue for both thinkers. Moreover, like Heidegger, Gardini discerns a particular role for what he calls the entry of the German essence into history in the transformation that's now needed. Although also like Heidegger, he immediately insists that this is not an ethnic reality, but is intimately connected with inwardness of faith in Jesus Christ, after whom he says all new religions are literary fantasies. Here, of course, is the decisive difference that for Gardini, the new beginning can only be a new Christian, indeed a new Catholic beginning, although, to repeat, his understanding of this is very different from that of many of his Catholic contemporaries who are in this time looking back to the Middle Ages as the model for social and intellectual renewal. Indeed, he's prepared to put St Peter's itself on the wrong side of the dividing line between the older and newer relations of nature and humanity. St. Peter's is already a sign of the coming age of technology. But again, then, the very proximity between Gardini and Heidegger also reveals a decisive and far-reaching difference. In Heidegger's thinking about the possibility of a new German beginning of philosophy, as we've heard several times already, inevitably, the poet Friedrich Hölderlin plays a central role, often overlooked in English-language secondary literature in favour of Heidegger's accompanying return to the first beginnings of philosophy in Heraclitus and Parmenides. I mean, chiefly because, you know, British scholars are aware of Heraclitus and Parmenides because of our own tradition of classics, but basically Hölderlin is hardly read at all, despite some good translations by Michael Hamburger a Jewish refugee from Germany. Although sometimes grouped with Kierkegaard and Nietzsche by Heidegger, it's Hölderlin who not only best expresses the need of the present time, but also points towards the possible future novum in which humanity will move beyond the violent global triumph of technology. Given this importance, it's only to be expected that Heidegger's turn to Hölderlin from the 1930s onwards involves interweaving a number of strands that are each important in their own right the need and destitution of the present, the true fatherland, the poetic vocation and the nature of language, the relationship between Germany and Greece, the flight and coming return of the gods, or even the god, the manifestation of the holy. In contrast to the methodological atheism of being and time, the appeals to the holy are striking. Indeed, in his prefatory remarks to a radio broadcast reading from Hölderlin, despite the remarks about radio in the black books, Heidegger identifies the holy as the definitive content of the poetic word. 
Yet equally, he insists that this does not mean any assimilation of Haldolinian thought to Christian doctrine. Perhaps his clearest statement of this is in comments on the poem and Denken, Remembrance, which were in, in lectures, I think, was it 1941, the lectures on Andenken. But interesting, he doesn't mention Gardini, but it's after the publication of Gardini's book anyway. The holy is not simply the divine, as that's found in some existing religion. Religion, again, in quotation marks. In this case, the Christian religion. The holy does not at all let itself be characterised in theological terms, since all theology already presupposes the theos, the God and does so with such certainty that wherever theology comes on the scene, the god has already embarked on flight. The Greeks, he says, never had any theology. Neither the German Christians, the confessing church, or the Catholic church is capable of discovering the true holiness of the fatherland. All, he says, perpetuate a 19th century intellectualism. And he comments, whoever thinks in this way does not think in the German way. Denkt nicht Deutsch. This refusal of theology may have its justification regarding certain apologetic approaches to literature. I'm sure we've all read them, kind of comments that find a Christian meaning in whatever work of literature it may be. It may also have its justification with regard to the undoubted pagan elements in Hölderlin himself. There are resistances to Christianity in Hölderlin. Yet even in terms of Hölderlin's work, there are passages that point to the possibility of a Christian reading. And it's striking that even when commenting on a poem such as Der Einziger, the unique one, Heidegger assiduously avoids even mentioning the most decisively Christological verses. He just doesn't mention them. Against the background of what we've thus far seen of the Heidegger-Gardini relationship, what then are we to make of the relationship between Heidegger's Hölderlin and Gardini's 570-page study, Hölderlin, Weltbild und Frömmigkeit? Will this exemplify precisely the kind of theological reading that Heidegger hates? Or will we find here, too, a complex relationship of proximity and distance? There's certainly one respect in which their approach to the poet is markedly similar, namely that neither engages with current critical literature. Gardini confesses at the outset to not even having read either of von Buchmann, Hölderlin und seine Goethe, 1935, or Hildebrandt, Hölderlin, Philosophy und Dichtung, 1939, which I think Heidegger does mention uh, at least sometimes. Gardini is also in agreement with Heidegger in viewing Hölderlin as something other than a poet or artist in any conventional sense. His opening sentence reads, The present work proceeds from the conviction that Hölderlin's poetry is of a different kind from that which has been developed in modernity. Hölderlin is not an artist, but a seer, seer. The point of origin from which Hölderlin's poetry proceeds belongs to another order of inwardness or elevation, according to which metaphor for remoteness one prefers, that no longer belongs to the sphere of subjectivity. Indeed, Hölderlin's poetic vocation is not only stronger or more arousing or more deeply manifesting the unconscious, but is essentially different. This essential difference is likewise manifested in his personal life. Again, like Heidegger, Gardini does not want to explain the poetry by means of the life, 
but he sees the tragedy of the life as a consequence of the poetic vocation. It is the manifestation of a loss of place, ortlosigkeit, that results from having been burnt by the fire of Apollo's heavenly lightning. Consequently, Gardini suggests, the reader's primary task is precisely to seek out this defining poetic vocation, Hölderlin's call, if you like, rather than debate the fine points of comparative criticism. And this is at least very close also to what we see Heidegger doing uh, in his lectures. Likewise, Gardini shares Heidegger's view that Hölderlin's defining themes, rivers, mountains, figures from Greek mythology, etc., are not to be viewed as allegorical or symbolic. What Gardini says of Hölderlin's rivers, for example, could almost equally well have been said by Heidegger. Having acknowledged a degree of symbolism that Hölderlin indeed shares with other poets such as Goethe, the river is a symbol of life, he claims that there is something more than this. When early human beings first had to do with a river, what they saw in the first instance was actual water, source, course, flow, running out into the sea. But this was more than what we understand in terms of geographical concepts. It was a being, Vazen. This is not intended anthropomorphically as indicative of a lack of scientific knowledge and clear concepts, nor is it a personification of an abstract object in the manner of imaginative thinking. But what took place here was genuine vision and shalom. What was intended was that which flowed, which froze in winter and came back to life in spring, that overflowed its banks and became dangerous, but also sustained travel and fishing. And precisely this was a being, a mysterious, frightening, yet alluring reality, a personal being with a will. One could encounter this someone in the figure of a bull, of a man or a woman, but these figures were not allegories of the river, nor were they its soul, but the river itself religious, mysterious, and at the same time, empirically real. Hölderlin, the seer, sees again this ancient, numinous experience of the river, albeit in, with, and under the conditions of his own late time. And in doing so, he sees a figure in which the whole of life, das ganze Dasein, is opened to interpretation. Gardini's exposition is developed through a sequence of what he calls circles, River and mountain, first circle. Humanity and history, second circle. The gods and religious relationship, third circle. Nature, the fourth circle. And finally, the fifth circle, Christ and the Christian, das Christliche. Again, it's not germane to the task in hand to go into detail of this, but we can broadly see how it's informed by the dynamic philosophy of der Gegensatz, the attempts to attract to track what Gardini sees as the essential living movement of Hölderlinian poetic thought. Each circle is driven by the internal tension of its polarities into the next, but is also retrospectively illuminated by it, and the truth is, of course, nowhere other than in the whole, or, to be precise, uh, nowhere other than in the rhythm of the movement towards the whole. One point, however, is worth focusing on in connection with Heidegger. It may seem surprising that Gardini places nature above both history and gods. This is because he sees nature in Hölderlin as encompassing everything that had gone before. As he says at the start of this circle, to speak of nature is to speak of everything that was important to Hölderlin. But nature, in this sense, is not exclusive of human beings. 
On the contrary, the dynamics of human beings' relation to nature are central both to the meaning of nature and of the human. As Gardini concludes his 130-page exegesis of nature, nature is the whole, but the whole is a secret. The expression of this secret is the world spirit. Everything that can be named subsists in this whole, things, human beings, and also the gods. This whole is the ultimate to which everything else is related. In it, the gods are bound to one another, but nature itself is not a god. It is not less but more than what this idea means in Haldalin's usage. It is simply what is, beginning, continuation, and end. But, and the question again returns us to the philosophy of De Gegensatz and the inaugural lecture, is this it? Is there anything beyond all that is thus encompassed in nature? Is the whole all? And what does this question mean for Holderlin's treatment of Christ? Here, Gardini concedes that, as in Der Einziger, where Christ is seen as the inheritor of Dionysos and Heracles, an aspect of Holderlin's Christ is indeed continuous with and belongs to nature. Yet there is also a difference, although, he says, not necessarily a difference that calls for an either-or. Christ himself is mythologized as, quote, the new men of eventide and of the end, an end that is not absolute but a return and a new beginning within nature. This same pattern extends to God the Father, to the Holy Spirit, to heaven and hell, and to the Eucharist. In a poem such as Germanian, this makes possible a virtual fusion between the images of Christ, of Germany itself, and of mystical Greece. These seem to be the same thing. Acknowledging that from the point of view of Christian doctrine, this cannot appear as anything other than an entire dissipation of Christianity, Gardini nevertheless suggests that there's more going on here than what a merely theoretical analysis of the formal content might allow. Quote, it has a quite different force as the nature of the phenomenon, the religious authority of the personality who speaks, and the force of his experience, a force that penetrates to the very heart of the matter. So again, it's a question, as it were, not of what Holderlin says at a formal level that a philosopher can analyse, but of hearing, as it were, the power of Holderlin's uh, poetic vocation. Hearing, as it were, seeing for ourselves the lightning of Apollo. So we're not left with an answer as to Holderlin's Christology, but a question. The question as to whether, in the end, Holderlin's Christ figure bursts the limits of nature and world and manifests a sovereignty proper to a Christian understanding. This last possibility, Gardini believes, remains open. Although, as he concludes, Holderlin's internal struggle between a natural Christ and a sovereign Christ remained undecided at the moment when he himself collapsed into silence. A decisive Christian reading therefore remains possible, but undecidable. Yet it's precisely in the sovereign impulse that makes Holderlin more than just a poet and more than a poetic philosopher that this undecidable possibility is to be found. The same place, perhaps, where Heidegger heard a fundamental contestation of Christianity and of the theological.
But is Gardini's interpretation then a theological interpretation in the negative sense defined by Heidegger in the lectures on Andenken? Has Gardini presupposed his theistic God as the ultimate goal and ground of poetic creativity? Is his concluding question just an apologetically attuned rhetorical ploy? Or is it perhaps Heidegger, who is here the dogmatist, whose exclusion of the Christian is a means of prior assurance against the openness and the demand of Hölderlin's shattering vision? Let's remind ourselves of the Black Book's judgment on Gardini. He runs through all the intellectual possibilities of the great figures from amongst the poets and thinkers, never dully and never crudely Catholic, and always with the appearance of a modern struggle for truth, and with all the means of contemporary thinking and speaking, but an essential question is never ventured, and he never even struggles with anything except questions that have not been posed now for a long while. It's always a matter of being in the secure and newly assured possession of answers for those eager to flee all questions. Gardini himself was probably right in his self-deprecation vis-à-vis the comparison with Heidegger with which Buchner sought to gain him for the Freiburg chair. Yet if only with regard to the Hölderlin book, there do not seem to be grounds for saying that this offers only the appearance of a struggle for truth or that no essential question is posed, still less that the question is one that has not been posed for a long while. After all, it seems to be precisely the question with which Heidegger himself is so often struggling in these years, namely whether the new beginning of the West can be thought otherwise than in the sign of all that the West has inherited not only from the Greeks but from Christianity. And perhaps Heidegger himself mostly addresses this question by simply avoiding it or more precisely denouncing it in the manner of a demagogue rather than attending to all that might be stirring within it. Thank you.